Sally Weinrich knew something was terribly wrong. The 70-year-old retired nursing professor realized her worsening symptoms, the forgetfulness and confusion, the difficulties communicating and organizing activities weren't just stress or the normal wear and tear of aging. Even her purposefully healthy lifestyle couldn't protect her from the darkness she feared most, Alzheimer's disease. That was the opening to the article we are going to be talking about on today's podcast, Alzheimer's Under Attack, the cover story for Discover Magazine's December 2018 issue written by today's guest, Linda Marsa. She is contributing editor for Discover Magazine, as well as author of the book Fevered about how climate change affects your health. I'm Jesse Hendricks, and you're listening to Scienced, a SoCal science writer's podcast, where each episode we talk with a science writer or communicator about one of their latest or most interesting projects. And so here we go. Today's article from Linda Marsa called Alzheimer's Under Attack explores a different perspective on Alzheimer's treatments. Historically, Alzheimer's research has focused on drugs that target amyloid plaques, which are sticky proteins that collect around brain cells associated with Alzheimer's. But in her research for this article, Linda discovered that new research suggests controlling lifestyle risks such as heart disease, diabetes, poor diet, and stress can actually slow the onset of the disease. Hi, Linda. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you for being on our very first podcast of Science. I want to start with a question. How did you come upon writing this article? I write a lot about Alzheimer's, and um, a friend of mine uh, who's an editor, Pam Weintraub, uh, had turned me on to uh, Dale Bredesen, and I read his book, The End of Alzheimer's, and I interviewed him for a um, brief magazine piece for another publication, and I just found what he was doing utterly fascinating. So I talked with my editors at Discover, and we went ahead and did the story. So that's the initial thing about how it came about. And you've been writing Alzheimer's research for a while, you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, because I've been writing about Alzheimer's for a while, there was a growing evidence that amyloid plaques were not these toxic bad boys. Amyloid plaques were an inflammatory response that the body used to defend itself and that they could be a good thing. So that really sort of created this kind of skepticism in my mind about Alzheimer's research in general. And then there were all these uh, clinical trials of drugs that focused on you know, stopping the creation of these amyloid plaques, and they all failed miserably. And there was sort of this growing consensus that maybe we were on the wrong track. So it sounds like what you're saying is that they thought that amyloids could have been a cause of Alzheimer's, but in retrospect, it might be that they're just an inflammatory response and not necessarily a cause, but a symptom of it. Correct. Yes, exactly right, that that the amyloids were a response to the disease as opposed to being a cause for the disease. And I thought that what Bredesen was doing was a very fresh approach. And if it was really worked, it would be a real breakthrough. So you and I have both obviously read the article, but for listeners who might not have read it, can you give a, a brief description of the article itself, kind of what you go into, what are the main issues, the main players, just so our listeners have some context? 
Well, when I first did the story, it was mostly a profile of Bredesen, Dale Bredesen, the neurologist at UCLA who had developed this kind of protocol for helping people. And honestly, my editors at Discover were really uncomfortable hanging this whole a tremendously controversial and paradigm-shifting approach to Alzheimer's on just one researcher. And so they wanted me to find naysayers. So I went on a naysayer hunt, which it really, it became like my, it became my new part-time job. You know, it really, it was almost hilarious if it wasn't, you know, my head was ready to explode. Because every time I, and but every time I'd interview somebody and I'd pick out people that were at major institutions that maybe I had interviewed before that I knew were really good scientists and that they didn't have an ax to grind or an agenda. You know, you really wanted to get good people. And I finally did find one, by the way, Victor Henderson at Stanford, who was wonderful. He was great and this and that. But in the interim, every time I'd call somebody up, it was hilarious almost. He goes, well, I don't know about Bredesen's approach, but I have an approach. And I thought, oh my God, you know, and really it, this happened like three times. And I thought maybe something else is there. So I talked about it with my editor, Becky Lang, who's the editor in chief at Discover, because at this point I'm kind of tearing my hair out. And I said, and these damn naysayers, every time I talk to one, they have another program. And she went, that's your story. So that was, that really sort of flipped everything around. And we felt more comfortable after that, that it wasn't just Bredesen who had come up with this, that these other doctors, as Jim Galvin, you know, uh, had said, one of the other neurologists that I interviewed, he said the light bulb was going off at the same time. That these other doctors, you know, frustrated by the lack of research. And, you know, one of the things that Jim Galvin told me that I found really very poignant, you know, he said in some of my darkest hours, I wonder if I'm doing anything for anybody. You know, and that really, uh, very, that really struck me when he said that. And the other piece of this is that uh, Galvin and these friends of his, along with some other doctors, got together this past September and are trying to pull this all together into developing some type of protocol that they could test, you know, to kind of do a clinical trial and develop a platform for this. I, I love when you were talking about calling these people and they're like, well, I don't know, but I have this program. So it sounds like no matter what, they're looking at other things that all include some sort of changes in lifestyle. So even though one specific protocol might not encompass everything that they want, there is this whole sort of paradigm shift towards lifestyle and away from the amyloid hypothesis. Yes, and, and I think that amyloids are going to play a role you know, that hopefully we will get a drug that really does something. And I, and I think that the drug will be part of a complete lifestyle thing. Yeah, so tell me about uh, Sally Weinrich. Well, Sally Weinrich was one of the people that went on uh, Bredesen's treatment protocol. And uh, she was, as I mentioned, a retired nursing professor. And she was living in South Carolina, uh, still is, with her husband. And she was starting to notice symptoms of early cognitive decline. And her husband uh, heard about Bredesen. They got in touch with Bredesen. And 
he uh, worked with her and they even, you know, it was long distance, obviously, because he's in UCLA, but he worked with her and uh, with a local doctor for her. And they developed a, a, a treatment regimen from her for her. And it wasn't easy. I mean, it was very complicated. It's not like, you know, eat a bowl of granola and call me in the morning. You know, it's more like it's a very comprehensive look at where your deficits are that might contribute to uh, this cognitive decline and then sort of reversing some of those. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I think immediately when you hear, you know, better lifestyle solutions or, you know, alternative medicine, it sort of, it feels like, well, wait a second, is this, is this something that actually works? Like just eating better or stressors? And I think that there's a lot of skeptics out there. Um, but this article really shows that this is not in the realm of alternative medicine, that what you've discovered in, in your article and, and are talking about is this emerging paradigm of better lifestyle solutions over kind of big pharma, um, not to knock that, and we talk about that a little bit later. Well, I, th- I think that um, treating amyloids is going to be one component, but I think that you need a comprehensive treatment plan. And I think that this is really uh, sort of the leading edge of 21st century medicine. Kind of makes me think of when um, you see the commercials for cereal and they say part of a well-balanced breakfast and they're cereal, but they also have like the fruit and the yogurt and all sorts of things. It's like, it's not just that. You can't just eat this and and be healthy. You also have to have a balanced lifestyle and food groups. I would compare this to heart disease. With heart disease, um, statins were a huge revolution. They really were. And it lowered the death rate. It lowered the number of heart attacks. It lowered and the and num- what are statins? Okay, so statins are drugs that lower cholesterol. You know, and cholesterol is the plaque that forms on our arteries and also that and forms those uh, uh, clots that cause strokes, uh, cause heart attacks, you know, the narrowing the arteries. And the reason I bring it up is that, yes, statins are the pill that has helped. But we also know now that controlling heart disease is part of a whole, you know, you have to do a whole lifestyle thing. You know, you, you, you exercise, eating right, sleeping right, stress reduction, and statins, quitting smoking, cutting out sugar. It's very similar is that, you know, these chronic diseases can be managed by lifestyle changes and also pharmaceuticals, drugs, things like that. But, but the drugs, it's not, you know, the fix that we're looking for. It's one part of a comprehensive approach to treatment. Going back to the clinical trials, I understand as, you know, as somebody who has a science background and somebody who very much likes to look into this sort of thing and and research, like, well, I think, okay, anything that seems like it might be gimmicky or generalized, I always want to look in, okay, what is the science being done on it? And a lot of times you look into the science by looking into the scientific papers, by looking into the research that's been done, the clinical trials. However, like you were saying, a lot of these clinical trials are funded by pharmaceutical companies who are testing their drugs. So how do you, first of all, how do you find the funding for it? And then how do you actually uh, execute the methodology for a clinical trial that's just about lifestyle change? Well, see, and that's been the problem. You know, that's really the crux of the problem is that you can't patent a lifestyle. 
And so there has been problems. And I know that Bredesen has been trying to do a clinical trial and get the money and get philanthropists to donate some money and maybe get some money from the NIH. But it's with each person, it's going to be different. So you can't just say, oh, they took this supplement and that worked. You know, it's the whole all-encompassing kind of thing. But having said that, there have been a lot of what's called observational studies. These are like these longitudinal studies that follow people over their lifespan. And they can see, you know, well, this person didn't get dementia because they did X, Y, Z. And this person did get dementia because they didn't do X, Y, Z. So a lot of these studies have come out recently. I mean, that was the other thing that was kind of emerging, is that we were seeing lower rates of dementia and Alzheimer's. And there was a, a Finnish study, and then also in studies of exercise. People had improvements in their cognitive abilities when when they did exercise on a regular basis. So there is that. There is sort of an underpinning, a sort of platform. As I said in the, in the story, you know, there was another story that was very quietly emerging while these amyloid tests were all failing. Yeah, and, and just for our listeners, I just want everybody to know, we, um, I, I feel like I can speak for Linda when I, I say we, we are not anti-pharmaceuticals. We are not anti-pharmaceutical industry, but this is very, this is just sort of the reality of where money comes from, of scientific research, and we are both um, real advocates for science and healthcare and all of that stuff. Um, but it is, it is an interesting, this article brought up so many interesting kind of philosophical right. points for me right. on all of this stuff. Well, yeah, and I mean, the pharmaceutical industry has its place, obviously. I mean, uh, we have much, we're living much longer. I mean, you know, the advent of penicillin practically doubled life expectancy overnight. Um, you know, statin drugs saved millions of lives. Uh, look at Herceptin, the uh, uh, breast cancer drug. But it, Drugs are not the end-all, be-all. You know, and the other piece of this is we've been hearing about how we should eat better and we should exercise. Are we doing it? No. You know, so that's the other piece of it, too, is that people aren't doing it. And maybe this will provide an extra incentive to start eating better and living better and getting regular exercise every day. I have a bad back. If I don't exercise and stretch every day, I feel like garbage the next day. So I have to. So that's, in a way, good for me, because if I don't do it, I'm in a lot of pain. And if I do do it, my life is tolerable. So I have a definite, you know, immediate reward, but a lot of people don't. They don't see it. Right. I guess my question for you, uh, out of personal curiosity, is just pertains to that those lifestyle changes because we know now that you know copious quantities of red meat are not good for you and you, know, you tell people hey like this isn't great for you um, you should definitely limit your intake of this but as much as people know that doing certain things isn't good for them like smoking cigarettes for example right. people don't necessarily stop doing it just because there's research behind it that says hey this is bad for you or this is going to contribute to x y and z in the future so how do we how do we deal with that in the future? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, this sort of gets back to how things become adopted, you know, and you look at, you know, the stuff emerges and then you have the early adopters, right, which are about 5 percent. 
And this is a sort of an example of that, you know, as the early adopters are the ones who tend to be more educated, more affluent than they can see. And then at some point, a critical mass forms and it explodes. And then this would be, and then, and then everybody says, well, this was obvious. Why weren't we doing it? Uh, right, what's that, right, what's that right. whole saying about, you know? <laughs> You know, you look back, you know, hindsight's three, 2020. Or, yeah, right. Or there's yeah. three stages, you oh, know, of, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, you hit upon a problem, though. All of the people that I interviewed who had gone through, you know, say, Bredesen's protocol, these were all very high functioning, affluent professionals. So, you know, the, one was this businessman, you know, Sally Weinrich has her PhD. Um, you know, one, uh, another person I interviewed was a psychiatrist. Another one was a cultural anthropologist. You know, you get the drift. So what does this mean for people who can't necessarily afford that sort of? Well, and, and it's not even just affording, you know, it's just like, you know, if you're working three, you know, three jobs, you know, it's very right. hard to find the time to, to right? and you live in a food desert, you know, it's very hard to find the time to meditate. Right. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. Or, you know, do stress reduction things. But the good news is that, you know, you look at, say, um, you know, places like, uh, you know, uh, Kaiser, you know, which is very big on prevention. You know, I could see in four or five years that these programs are going to be adopted into these big, uh, big medical programs, plans like Geisinger or Kaiser, where which really focus on prevention because they understand that prevention saves money. Ounce of prevention is worth a pound, pound of, of cure. cure. My yeah. grandma always said. Yeah. <laughs> so it saves money. So I could see, you know, that happening. You know, one of the things I get questioned a lot, well, should I go to Bredesen and this and that and the other thing? And I think, you know, right now, if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, just live better. You know, this is, should be more incentive to live better because Alzheimer's starts in the womb. Wow, I didn't know that. Alzheimer's starts in the womb, and we sort of add cumulative things. I just, yeah, I didn't know that. That's really interesting but to that's me. New, that's new. That's new. Anyway, throughout our lives, we have cumulative insults on our brain health. Insults? I'm guessing this isn't the kind of insult that's like, you know, you muck me, sir. Well, you know, you have stresses growing up. And then, you know, living in polluted areas and having, um, you know, poor lifestyles, you know, over the course of our lives, this contributes. It adds up. It adds up. And then if you have the genetic makeup that makes you more susceptible. Right. There's the, um, the A, so APOE. APOE 3, three gene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. In your in your research for this article, like you were saying, it sounds like a very controversial topic. Um, how did you go about your research so you felt comfortable as a science writer reporting on something that was controversial for other people? And and how did you go about you know fact checking and making sure everything was above the line and and scientific and all of that? Well, you know, as a science as science writers, we have to be rigorous. Before I pitched the story, 
I ended up doing a lot of work. I asked several neuroscientists that I respect. You know, I, I talked to Leroy Hood, you know, and he was sort of the clinch. But there were other people I talked to. You know, these are all members of the National Academy of Sciences. He, uh, Michael Mesernick won the Kavli Prize. And uh, there was, and then Lauren Steinman, who had no relation to um, Dale Bredesen, but he knew of Dale and he knew of his work. And uh, Lauren Steinman, again, is on the faculty at Stanford, and he is a member of the National Academy, and they thought that he was on to something. And I talked to other researchers, so um, there was that aspect of it. But the thing that really did it for me, where I sort of became convinced, is I interviewed his patients. I interviewed about seven or eight people who had documented cognitive decline, PECT scans, you know, the whole shot, the whole nine yards, um, people who had to quit their jobs, you know, people who uh, were really uh, losing function. Uh, this one woman, a lawyer really stands out. She was proficient in Chinese and Russian, and she also was a, had been a concert pianist in her youth. She had forgotten how to do all those things. And when she followed Bredesen's protocol, it all came back which I think is just amazing. And uh, this other woman that I interviewed, I had to change their uh, jobs in the story, but you know, she was a cultural anthropologist who does evaluations of uh, NGOs around the world. So she's somebody who has to travel to Bangladesh, she travels to Kenya, places like that. This is complicated to do that. And she really had to stop doing it because she was g getting too confused and then she followed Bredesen's protocol, and I, like I said, I talked to these people, and they're 100%. And I guess the one that really sort of, again, clinched it for me was the businessman that I profiled in the piece. And I talked to his neuropsychologist who had been doing evaluations on him since 2003, and he'd really gone downhill in uh, probably 12 years. And at, in 2015... His neuropsychologist told him, you better start thinking about shuttering your businesses. And, you know, I, I interviewed his ex-wife, and she said he was really very diminished, et cetera, et cetera. She's the one who found Bredesen. They went to see him, and he started following the protocol, and I interviewed him. He's expanding his business into the UK now, and he was just 100%. So that is what really sort of did it for me is talking to the patient. So I had the doctors who felt that he was on the right track. And then I had the patients. So that convinced me that there was enough of a story here to that I felt comfortable. Do you feel responsible as a science writer who has been writing in the industry for a while? Um, and, and you have this sort of unbiased view because your whole, you know, you're obviously writing about this, but your whole life isn't dedicated to scientific research predicated on, you know, one hypothesis. You're sort of stepping back and, as an observer. When you saw this, did you feel responsible to sort of disseminate this information out to the world and let people know? Yeah, I, well, I, I mean, why do we become science journalists? I mean, that's why we're journalists is because we do, we're conduits. And um, as, as I said earlier, the thing that really sort of clinched it for me was the fact that these were very legitimate people at major universities. That's number one. And then I talked to the people. 
I mean, these are sharp people. These are people who were able to go back to work at very demanding jobs that they had to give up. I, you know, I, uh, Sally Weinrich, I, she's just a lovely person. I had long conversations with her. This is not somebody who's in the grips of cognitive decline, but she was. She said that I was much different. And it was sad because this was obviously a very bright, highly educated person. But I also feel a responsibility not to, you know, promote snake oil. Thank you so much for talking today uh, on the podcast. And thank you so much for writing this story as well. I think it was really meaningful to me. And I think a lot of people are going to find it very meaningful in a plethora of ways. And I think, I think you did a really great job and a really great service. Well, thank you for having me. If you guys want to find more information uh, about the article or about Linda, you can go to www.lindamarsa.com. That's M-A-R-S-A, Marsa. And if you have any questions about today's podcast or suggestions for a future podcast, please send us a message at sciencedpodcast at gmail.com. We are also on social media at sciencedpodcast. And if you are a Southern California-based science writer, please join us at socalsciencewriting.com and sign up to get emails for local events, workshops, and our annual symposium. Thank you so much for listening and sharing our Scienced Podcast, where you can stay educated about science.